This is Holding Court with Patrick McEnroe. Now, here's Patrick McEnroe. All right, time for another edition of Holding Court, everyone. Patrick McEnroe here, and uh, very, very honored to have on someone I've been paying a lot of attention to on the TV news on CNN over these last couple of months. Of course, he's a former senator from the great state of Pennsylvania, and he is the one and only Rick Santorum, who also has quite a history in the game of tennis. So I think we better tackle that first, Mr. Senator. Uh, I'm not sure that that, uh, that deserves that kind of introduction, but, uh, but thank you for that. Yes, I, my history is more uh, who, uh, who my brother is than who I am. And your brother, of course, runs the PTR, which is known in the tennis world as Professional Tennis Registry, which essentially educates uh, coaches and teachers of tennis. He's been doing it for many, many years. And uh, it's, that's Dan Santorum, who I spent quite a bit of time with when I was running uh, the player development program at the USTA, uh, Mr. Senator, for a while. We sort of, I wouldn't say we butted heads, but we, you know, we both had sort of different agendas. So I'm sure you can appreciate that. But he gave me a little lowdown on your game um, and so this is what it was he t- I talked to him over the weekend he said solid forehand you know pretty good athlete I know you guys played a lot of baseball when you were young as kids growing up in Pennsylvania but the backhand maybe needs a little bit of work correct a lot a lot of work not, not a little work a lot of work <laughs> yeah no I, I forehand I I, uh, I always said when I played basketball and baseball you could have tied my left hand behind my back and it wouldn't have made any difference in my <laughs> game uh and so uh it just uh for some reason I, I'm, I'm really good on the right side but working anything off the other off the left side whether it's backhand or or uh whatever it is I, I'm not not uh not very coordinated I work in that side of my body for some reason. Well, your brother told me that uh, you guys butted heads a little bit. Of course, you're Irish twins. You were born just 11 months apart. So I, I know a That's little. Right. I know a little bit about butting heads with my brother, though he's a, a really? quite a, quite a bit older than me, and usually got the better of me, certainly on the tennis court. But what was it like for you guys growing up so close in age, and obviously you know being into sports and 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 growing up in a working class family where you guys did in Pennsylvania, and then sort of. You know, talk to me a little bit about how your brother ended up getting in so much into tennis. And, of course, you uh, became a lawyer, be- got into politics in the House, and then went on to the Senate. So how did that all transpire as you were growing up? Yeah, well, we were, as you mentioned, we were very, very competitive. Uh, we played baseball together and basketball together. And, uh, you know, in, in both those sports, I would say we were generally competitive, although, honestly, uh, he, he was – he was always a better athlete than I was, but uh, I, 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 you know, I tried to make up with it for just, just maybe working a little harder. But uh, when it came to tennis, uh, Dan sort of uh, took a liking uh, to tennis. Uh, the, the tennis coach at, at, the, at the high school uh, was someone that uh, was a teacher there that uh, Dan really uh, formed a bond with and encouraged Dan to, uh, to take up tennis. Uh, he did. And he just, he just flourished. And uh, I decided at that point, I played a little tennis too, uh, saw how good he was and decided I didn't like tennis anymore. Uh, <laughs> I know, I know that feeling, <laughs> Mr. Senator. <Yeah>. <laughs> so I decided that I would, I would, I would take up, uh, I would take up golf, which is what I did. So I started playing golf. He started playing tennis and uh, there was a public course that was about a mile down the road. And so I could walk, uh, walk down and, 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 and play a little on, on that course down the street. And, uh, so I did that, 
and he just he just took off. He loved the game, uh, you know, was was very good at it, uh, you know, and uh, but he decided, unfortunately for him and his game, uh, he decided to go to the University of Florida, and uh, as you know, that's a pretty top tier tennis program, and right. so he uh, he didn't he didn't compete at the NCAA level, but he he continued his passion for the sport, and uh, uh, when he uh, when he graduated, went to work uh, at a um, if I recall, it was a, the the uh, the the company is called Athletic Attic, and mm-hmm. so uh, in Charlottesville, Virginia, uh, and uh, ended up doing, being an assistant coach at the uh, at the tennis team at UVA, and uh, went down and got some got some uh, training at Vandermeer. And long story right. short, he ended up he ended up working uh, for for Dennis as one of his. Uh, uh, one of his assistants, if you will. Right. And, and I, you know, Dan's a, a smart guy, a hardworking guy, and uh, you know, just basically rose to the top to the point where uh, when Dennis, uh, you know, moved on, uh, Dan sort of took over the operation at, at Vandermeer and, uh, and the PTR, which Dennis set up, uh, was, uh, was sort of uh, – he took that over too and has been running it for 30 some years now. Yeah, he's done an amazing job. By the way, for those of you who are not tennis fanatics, Dennis Vandermeer, considered one of the great, the legendary coaches and teachers, really, a guy who started his own company and really began teaching other coaches and teachers how to teach the sport, get better, and uh, run clinics, run camps for adults, for kids. And, and that's what uh, your brother Dan continues to do. So you decide to get into the political world. I've been lucky enough, uh, Mr. Senator, to, to at one point hit on that tennis court that very little people know about. Oh, really? There's a tennis court in yeah. the Senate building. Um, and when mm-hmm. in your years in the Senate representing Pennsylvania, uh, apparently you played pretty regularly, didn't you, on that Senate court? I- I, I did. I had a I had a pretty uh, pretty uh, pretty much of a routine every day when I when we were uh, in session in the Senate, and uh, I would get up uh, every morning uh, at Odark Hundred and uh, and go in and play and go in and play tennis uh, either between six and six thirty in the morning. We'd play I'd play an hour. I'd play other senators. I'd play uh, staffers who were uh, you know who were who were good tennis players. Occasionally, I'd play some people from outside. Mm-hmm. You know whether they were. You know, folks who worked in Washington are friends of mine. Uh, and you're right; they're in, in the uh, in the Russell Building, which uh, excuse me, in the uh, in the Hart Building, which is uh, which is one of the three Senate office buildings. When they built that building, they built a tennis court at the at the top floor, an indoor court, uh, so uh, members would have the opportunity to be able to uh, to sneak away and and you know get a little exercise. I mean, I, you know, people as, as now now knew, but even back then recognized. You know, getting rid of stress and and mm-hmm. having some athletic uh, opportunities is a good thing for for your health, also a good thing for your mind. And so for me, it it was just a great way to start my day to get my get the blood pumping. And uh, so I played. I I almost always played singles. Not that I don't like doubles, but for me, it was about exercise. It was about getting the blood pumping and and uh, and and the competition. So I uh, played singles usually two or three times a week. Uh, did that for. 12 years and so pretty much played like i said pretty routinely during that time and uh like as dan said uh developed some some good habits but uh never really quite excelled uh the way 
the way I, I would have liked, but uh, that's the way it goes. Well, tennis is not an easy game to get uh, very good at. And trust me, in my years now uh, trying to teach and help young kids, I see how, how difficult it can be. But, uh, you know, obviously what's happened in the last week, uh, you talk about the tennis court at the Capitol. That was, that was, we wish people were looking to play tennis with what happened in the past week yeah. over there. And obviously a, a much more serious topic. But I've been watching you a lot on CNN over, really over the last few months. And, of course, you're the, you're the lone conservative amongst all the, uh, <laughs> the liberals there, the Democrats. So I've, I've, I've admired the way you've handled that and sort of speaking from, from a, a, a place of reason, it seems, and middle ground, maybe not quite middle ground, but at least not um, uh, sort of way out there. So what, what, what is your overall take on, on where we are now, what that meant for the country, and sort of how we go forward from this point? Uh, it was a it was a very troubling week. Uh, I have to say, I mean, because obviously I'm I'm a Republican, I'm a conservative. I support a lot of what Donald Trump uh, was trying to accomplish uh, in in his time as president. Uh, but from my perspective, uh, the wheels came off uh, when uh, you know after the election or even election night. Uh, I remember going on TV at three in the morning when I was uh, sitting there on CNN on the set, and uh, we were we were. <laughs> covering the election night, which turned into election week. And, mm-hmm. and when the president came out and basically said, you know, the, the election was stolen, frankly, without any evidence to do so, uh, you know, I pushed back pretty hard and said, you know, look, that may be the case, but you can't say it unless you can prove it. And you, and you shouldn't maintain and try to tell the public something that you don't know is true. And so, uh, you know, from that point on, I said, he has the right to, to pursue that and to, uh, uh, investigate and 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 determine whether there was in fact uh, uh, provable allegations of fraud or or, or uh, irregular ballots that that could have overturned the election. But uh, he failed. Uh, he failed in doing so. He has a right to do it, uh, but he he failed in doing so. Uh, but yet continued to maintain that that was the case. And uh, that I, I feel I feel bad for a lot of people who put their trust in him that that he would continue to maintain these things, even though that that, that was not the case, and, and continue to say that there was something that could be done to overturn the election as, as, as late as, as last week, uh, you know, last, uh, uh, what was it, the 6th. Right. Uh, none, none of that was true. And, and I, again, I think a lot of people were misled and riled up, and uh, that, was, uh, that, that, that was wrong on the part of the president. And uh, I give credit to folks like Mike Pence and Mitch McConnell and so many others who stepped up and said, you know, enough of this. Uh, you know, we had we had the right and, in fact, obligation to uh, uh, to determine whether there was something that illegalities that took place. But once that uh, that failed to, to produce anything that that a court would recognize, then you accept the election and you move on and you fight to fight. You know, you, you, you live to fight another day. Uh, and, and that's not what the president did. And I think it was the. Uh, uh, really, a black mark on his on his presidency. It's an unfortunate one, Senator Santorum. What do what do I say? What do we say? I mean, you're in a, in a much different position than me, but I have a lot of a lot of friends on the conservative side, and they even to this day continue to say. And I could hear a little bit of it from in in what you just said. Well, you know, there's 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 reports out there that there was you know, some fraudulence that was going on. There were some discrepancies yeah. in some in some states, yeah. but if you can't prove it, but there's still people that actually believe it's still there, that it's there somewhere. Yeah. And the reason yeah. it's not out there is, I don't know, corporate politics or... Yeah, yeah. You know, so that here's that, what, that here's argument, what I, yeah. Yeah, here's what I would say. 
you have you have the next uh, t- couple of years to uh, to prove your case. If you, mm-hmm. if you think you didn't have time, or if there's there's some you know corporate thing or whatever the case, but fine. Uh, you know, spend spend uh, the time and money uh, necessary to to do to do the audits, to do the work. I know in Pennsylvania, uh, the state legislature there has uh, formed a special commission to actually look into the details of the problem. That's a perfectly appropriate thing to do if you believe that there are legitimate complaints out there and, and you hadn't had the time. And it's look, it's hard in a, in a few weeks as they're processing ballots. It's hard to come up with a really solid case of, uh, of fraud. It takes a long time to investigate a case and to get all the information. And, and here's my point is, uh, there have been lots of elections. I've been in an election mm-hmm. uh, that, the, that, that the vote count got it wrong. Uh, you know, I, I lost the Iowa caucuses uh, when I was running for president in 2012 to Mitt Romney by eight votes. Mm. And then uh, two and a half weeks later, they announced I won. Well, <laughs> you know, winning, winning two and a half weeks later doesn't help you very much because by then everybody's moved on to the next primaries. And so I know what it's like to have an election gotten wrong and, and, and to be robbed of a victory. Uh, that happens, like it or not. I mean, it's an imperfect system. It happens all the time in America. What doesn't happen is people saying, well, we think we got robbed. Right. And, and, and therefore, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna change, change the election and, and give it to a, another person, even though we don't have proof yet that it's true. That doesn't happen. And it shouldn't happen. I'm willing to accept the imperfect system that we get wrong and then later prove, you know what? Uh, look at Richard, Richard Nixon in 1960. I mean, Rich, and this is, goes back, and I, I'm sure most people don't, don't remember this, or certainly if they remember it, they, they, or they may have read about it, but Richard Nixon had the election stolen from him in 1960 in the, in, in the city of Chicago. Um, and there was certainly uh, a lot of uh, suggesting even at the time when he was swear they were swearing in and certifying the ballots. I mean, Nixon was vice president, just like Mike Pence. And he went, he said, you know what? Uh, I'm fairly confident this election was stolen, but, uh, we can you know, we don't have time to investigate all the details. And so we have to accept, have to accept the, uh, the, the, uh, the judgment of the state of Illinois and certify the ballots. Well, later on, it was pretty much shown that Nixon won. Uh, but, that's okay. I mean, I know that's not good, mm-hmm. but it's better. It's better than Richard Nixon saying, "You know what? I'm going to block this, or I'm going to do whatever I can, and and somehow overturn uh, our constitutional order of things because he thinks he won." Uh, that and and then find out that maybe he didn't win. That's worse. Do you, so, you, uh, so, so that. Yeah, so, do you think Trump really thinks he won, or is he just lying? Oh, no question in my no. My question in my mind is, he believes he won. He's, he has, a, he has a bunch of people around him that has convinced him that there was this uh, there was substantial amount of fraud in, in in several states that he thinks he won and and that's fine you can think you won but it, but unless you can prove it you have to accept it go ahead and fight for the next year or two to prove you're right all all well and good and it, and if you do then look at Richard Nixon he was president eight years later um, so th- these things have a way of working themselves out. And we have to accept the fact that our, our system isn't perfect, that we, that we have an obligation to continue to investigate if we, if we believe there's, uh, there, there was fraud. But you, you have to allow the process to work. And the process, 50 states certified this election. And, and that's the process we have in America. And uh, 
And we have to accept the fact that the states did their job. They may not have done it well, but they did their job. And and it's time to move on. So, um, I mean, it seemed like when I, you know, when I, when I did a little bit of homework and a little history on, on your career and your beliefs and the, you know, the books you've written on, on, on conservatism, on your faith, uh, on your daughter, I know, who had a health, you know, serious health issue and how that, that transformed your life with your family and mm-hmm. so on. But a lot of the things yeah. that you seem to have talked about over the years, Senator, are, are sort of, you know, the big things that Trump and his supporters have been talking, you know, big government's bad, big, you know, media's bad. Uh, you know, we need to have more conservatism in sort of our general walk of life. So when you look at what's happened in the past couple of years it, it almost seems like you in your own way were you, know, you were ahead of your time or predicting that these kind of things would become larger issues for more and more people how do you see that continuing over the next few years yeah i uh i wrote a book back in 2014 when i ran for president in 2012 and came in second to mitt romney i i ran my campaign on what I termed at the time a blue-collar conservative message, mm-hmm. uh, talking about manufacturing. Uh, I had all sorts of proposals on how we were going to bring manufacturing back and how we were going to have better trade policies and uh, immigration to make sure that workers were not uh, not seeing their wages undermined by, by cheap labor coming in. The I mean, a lot of the things you've heard from Donald Trump right. uh, were things that I talked about before Donald Trump got into the arena. In fact, uh, back in 2014 when I wrote the book, uh, Donald Trump called me and uh, I actually had a meeting with Trump in his office. Mm. And when I walked into my office, he was holding a copy of my book and said, uh, this is a great book. He said, you know, this is what this is. This should be a platform running for president. And he did. Mm-hmm. And he did it better than I to, to, to his credit. He did it better than I do. He won. I did. not <laughs> uh, And so and so a lot of the Trump ideas when it came to the forgotten people in America, the folks who are blue collar workers of, of all color. Uh, in America who see the Democratic Party as, you know, off with the tech world and, and, and mm-hmm. global warming and, and, and all of these social issues that, that don't impact, you know, lunch bucket Americans particularly, uh, in fact, impact them negatively because of a lot of the policies hurt, you know, energy jobs and service jobs and a lot of the other, a lot of jobs that, that folks who don't have college degrees have in America and and if you looked at Republicans, they seem to be just worried about cutting taxes and lowering capital gains rates. And and no, neither party really seemed to focus on the fact that, yes, the economy was getting better. And there's a chapter in my book that, that says a rising tide lifts all boats unless your boat has a hole in it. Mm. And then a, a rising tide is a scary thing because it's one thing if you have a hole in your boat and the tide is low. It's another thing if you see everybody else, you know, mm-hmm. the tide going up and all the boats going up, that means your boat sinks and you're in, you're in, you're in, you're in danger of drowning. And that's how, that's how people are feeling. And Trump captured that and captured that very well. And I still think, and I, I talked to a lot of my liberal friends, I still think the Democratic Party hasn't gotten that. They haven't figured out that the anger and the anxiety that people are feeling because of the economics of the Democratic Party and who they seem to be tied to, which is, you know, big tech and the environmental groups and things like that, don't speak to the 74% of Americans over the age of 25 who don't have a college degree. And when Democrats go out and say, you know, we're going to pay for everybody's student loans, well, who's paying for it? The 74% who don't have student loans. And, and, how, and how do they feel about that? How do they feel that now they, they, they're going to pay for people who 
are, are getting, I have better jobs and have better opportunity. And now they're going to pay for that too. <clears throat> so there's, I think there's a, there's a hole on both sides uh, of, of, of the part of in both political parties when it comes to the vast majority of Americans. And that's why you're, that's why Trump was able to, uh, to have the passionate support of people that he did is because he talked about their everyday concerns and problems and had solid proposals, whether it was on energy or manufacturing to, to deal with, you know, improving wages and it worked. Uh, you know, you can, you can argue what you want about Donald Trump, but his economic policies prior to the pandemic, uh, created the best economy for working men and women in this country that we've seen in a long, long time. Former Senator Rick Santorum joining me here on Holding Court. Another book you wrote, Senator, was American Patriots Answering the Call to Freedom. So what, mm-hmm. do, what do you say to those people who, it sounds like what they think they're doing as the ones who went to the Capitol and then, you know, the hardcore yeah. Trump supporters, they yeah. think they're answering the call to freedom. So it's not just the Democrats, apparently, that they're upset with. They seem to be upset mm-hmm. with some Republicans as well. So me. Yeah, with <laughs> you too. Me. Well, God forbid yeah. you be on CNN, right? So that right yeah, there, right. That, that, cross, <laughs> that crosses you off the list. But no, but in seriousness, what do you say to those people? Um, or is there any way, is there anything you can say at this point? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would say this, that I understand people's frustration and anger. You know, when, when, when the world is changing and things are happening that you feel are beyond your control, when people, quote, with power uh, are, are, are doing things that, that seem to be stifling you and shutting you down, uh, I just remind people that we're still a, we're still a republic, we're still a democracy, and, and, and the reality is that uh, – that we have the freedoms, even today, we have the freedoms to go out and, and win elections. Yeah, Donald Trump lost the election this time around, but Republicans mm-hmm. picked up seats in the House. They picked up seats in the legislature. They actually did very, very well. Uh, so our democracy at, at this point, is it in peril? Yeah, it's always in peril. There's always uh, threats to democracy. And, and I believe that what big tech is doing and and, and silencing people is really a big mistake. I, I actually support the social media platforms. I think that, that they've done a tremendous job in, in actually you know, opening up debate and allowing different, different voices to be heard. And I think their move right now to try to shut that down is a dangerous one and one that I would encourage them not to do. I think free speech is a good thing. And the way you, you curb bad speech is more speech, not trying to limit the bad speech. You, you defeat bad speech by allowing more good speech to to overrun it, not by trying to impose your opinions and shut down what you consider to be bad speech. So, uh, isn't there uh, isn't doesn't there isn't there a point though where it where you know it's like if you, you go into a, into a movie theater right and say you know fire everybody get out of here like at some at some point I'm not you know you we can argue I mean many people say obviously that Trump incited what happened at the Capitol and that he's done it over time you know some people say he didn't it was you know you know I, so I've seen both sides of it but at, but but isn't there got to be a point where free speech you can't just say anything you want no I agree you can't say, and and there are. Uh, you know, all these social media platforms have uh, have norms that they keep to. The problem is, is how those norms are enforced. Mm-hmm. And and when you can say, and when you say, well, we're going to shut down the president of the United States, but we're going to allow the leader of the Communist Party in China to say whatever he wants. Well, then you're not really uniformly enforcing your norms because uh, it, it, that's that's the problem. Is that you know, it's an enforcement. It's not an issue of what having those 
those content moderation policies. I, I think they're absolutely appropriate. It's how they're enforced. And look, Patrick, I mean, you know this. You live in New York, right? And mm-hmm. so uh, the, the reality is the group, the world that you live in in Manhattan is very different than the world that people live in uh, in, uh, uh, you know, in in Clear Lake, Iowa. Right. Okay. I mean, sure. it's just, they're, they're different values that you, I hear this all the time. I don't know anybody that voted for Donald Trump. And I also hear the other, I don't know anybody who didn't vote for Donald mm-hmm. Trump. And the problem is that unfortunately in the, a lot of the social media firms, they don't know anybody that's voted for Donald Trump. They have no, they have no idea these values and these, these thoughts that are coming from people on the other side are so foreign to them, unfortunately. That, that they that they look foreign, they look scary, when in fact they're you know in in most cases they're not. It's just that they're different than yours, and you need to tolerate differences, and you need to understand that people saying things that you might disagree with or you find offensive is okay as long as it's not calling people to violence, it's not not doing things that are that that are directly harmful. It's okay to put different points of view out there, even if you find them dramatically offensive. Uh, you know, that's that's actually the beauty of our country is that we allow people to to get that. I, I use the, the example of a pressure cooker. You know what Madison said, uh, James Madison said when when the First Amendment, when he was debating the First Amendment, he said it's the perfect remedy. And the, and and the question is the remedy to what as to how society gets along, because that's if you think about a constitution, that's what it's about. It's about. How do we structure a government where we allow people to get along with each other and, 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 and have a functioning society? And, and, and if we suppress speech that we find offensive, mm-hmm. you're, it's, like, it's like putting a pressure – it's like putting a lid on, on a boiling pot of water. You, the, the way, the way you, you make sure that pot doesn't explode is you let the steam out, and it's good for people, as much as you may not like it, it's good for, for quote, radical voices or voices that you may disagree with to, view, to put their conspiracy theories out there or whatever the case may be, mm-hmm. their conspiracy theories on both sides. Let them out there. Let the public go out there and prove them or disprove them. It's because if you try to contain it, you just put this pressure on the pressure cooker and it explodes. The best thing, as Madison said, is is to allow people to feel they have a they have the ability to make their case. And as long as people feel ultimately, as long as people feel they have the ability to go out and make their case, if they lose, they lose. Mm-hmm. But if they're never allowed to make their case, if they're shut down and they and they and they feel like they're marginalized in society, that's when really bad things happen. Well, and we don't want that. We don't want those bad things. I'd rather deal with conspiracy theories on the left and the right, which are out there all over the place, than dealing with the with the with a a movement that is shuttered and closed off and nobody sees or hears from. That's the danger. Well we could go on because uh, I had so many a list of so many things I wanted to ask you. <laughs> and uh, you know you're a, a, an awesome guest, but I told you I promise you it'd be twenty to twenty five minutes. We've already gone over. Before I let you go, Senator Will you run for office again in the future? Uh, no, no plans right now. I've, <laughs> I've got a, I've got a, I've got a lot of things on my plate right now uh, uh, with uh, with family and obligation. You know, I've 
I got involved in politics when I was uh, in my in my 30s. I got elected to Congress at the age of 32 and the Senate at the age of 36. And, and it was before I made any money. And, and so unlike some people, I didn't make any money in politics. <laughs> I just made my salary. And so, uh, you know, I have seven kids and, uh, you know, still have two kids in college. And I've got three kids getting married in the next year. And so I've got, a, I've got enough on my plate right now at home to keep me busy. All right. Well, listen, uh, you know what? I've always said, you know, when people complain about politicians going off and making money, I said, why not? This is America. Why can't they make money? And they have to make money. So absolutely do it. And the other thing we need to, I think we need to get a little brothers doubles match. Maybe you, you and me take on the big boys, Dan and John McEnroe. Uh, I, all right. As long, as long as your shoulders are strong enough to carry me around. That's great. <laughs> Sounds good. Keep up the good work, Senator. I appreciate you, you. Uh, coming on with me and uh, uh, keep doing what you're doing. Thanks so much. Fred. You got God it. Bless. God bless you. Ah, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, that was really something to uh, hear from Rick Santorum, former presidential candidate and, of course, Senator from Pennsylvania. Great to hear his thoughts on the conservative movement, where it's at, and, of course, what's transpired recently and his interest in tennis. And this podcast was brought to you by my friends at MyPillow. Uh, they don't go flat. You can wash and dry them as much as you want. They're made in the USA. Right now, the sale from the holidays, it's still going. Queen-size premium my pillow, normally $69.98. Now you can get it for $29.98. That's $40 off. So money-back guarantee for 60 days. It's been extended to March 1st. Go to MyPillow.com. Click on the radio listener square. Discounts on all sorts of their products, including the Giza Dream bed sheets, the My Pillow mattress topper. You've got the uh, dog pillows as well. I got one of those for my dog. Absolutely phenomenal. So either go to mypillow.com or you can call 1 800 875 1023. That's 1 800 875 1023 and use the promo code CORT. Thank you to Rick Santorum. Holding Court with Patrick McEnroe is powered by Mudhouse Media.